And let's open our Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I get many emails every day, but only a few are from real people (laughs) whom I really know. Uh, Sometimes I get emails from you that you didn't send. Uh, I got one this week. This is sort of a recreation of it. (laughs) And uh, generally these emails have a link, like you see those letters in blue there on the bottom. They have a link, and the goal of the email is to get you to click on the link. And uh, if you do, something bad will happen. Uh, Something you didn't want to happen. uh, I think one time, many years ago, I clicked on a link that said I, my virus protection was something, 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 and I clicked on it, and sure enough, my whole computer got infected. Um, but the key here was I knew this wasn't from somebody that I know because it was addressed to Pastor Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Greetings, Pastor Dave. And uh, they copied that off of my uh, email address. The criminals who send out sinful, enticing emails and viruses know that we enjoy keeping in touch with people. We enjoy getting personal uh, correspondence. Uh, uh, We enjoy hearing from people. And so there's a real temptation to think, oh, what did my friend send me? And they play on our desire for communication to get us into their traps. I bet the Christians at Corinth were excited to hear what Paul had written when he sent this letter to them that we call the book of 1 Corinthians. I'm sure that the main leaders of the congregation gathered together uh, to hear this letter read and and probably gathered as many people as they could and, and cracked open the seal and got ready to read this. And I'm sure they were excited to read it, but... I'm also sure they probably heard a couple of things they weren't expecting in this letter. Let's read the first uh, part of the first chapter here. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our, our, of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We want to introduce this book today and some of the concepts that we're going to be pursuing. Um, We're going to study through the book of 1 Corinthians. And so we want to ask the question, first of all, what do we know about Corinth? Well, um, first of all, we know that it was a real place, and it still exists in a real place. 
and it's, it's roughly right there. I wanted you to get a picture of Europe and a picture of Greece. And uh, I'm on very delicate ground today because we have a native of Greece who currently lives there. <laughs> so if I say anything wrong, I'm giving you permission to give me a shout out. Okay, Helen? <laughs> and if we go a little bit closer, you see there, that's the area we're talking about near Athens, but it's not Athens. And then we get real close and we see that there's an isthmus of land, a, a connecting bridge between two pieces of land. You see right there, you can barely see it, but here we realize that from the north of Greece down to what is referred to as the south or the southwest, this is the way people had to move. Now there's something in here that would not have been there in the time that Paul wrote this book. Who knows what that is? The canal. That is a that is a canal like, like the Panama Canal or the Suez Canal or something along that line. And what's fascinating is that when they would come from over here, say from the area that we would now call Turkey or even from down over from, from Israel, which would be down here, they would sail up and they would sail their ship right to here. And if they had goods that were going up that way, up to Italy or, and so on, they would take their ship out of the water and drag it across the land. Yeah, no joke. They put rollers under it, depending on how big it was. If it was a really big ship, then they'd offload it, move the cargo across the land, it's about four miles, and then they'd load it on another ship and go. Because the only other way was to go around down here, which added about 220 miles to their journey, and apparently this is quite a treacherous journey because you're going around, um, uh, sort of like going around the end of South America or a place like that, or South Africa. When you go around, the, the tides are moving in different directions. They had a saying that if you're going to sail on that route, you should make your will before you go. <laughs> and so, so this, right, the, the Corinth itself, of course, today is just a, what we call a ruins which means um, in time it, it, it fell into disrepair and they literally built on top of it. You know, we, we can't hardly understand that. The closest thing we have here is if you go to Seattle, there's a thing called the Underground Tour. Have you ever heard of that? There's actually, a, there's an area around Pioneer Square where there's a whole nother level of city down below the city and, and that used to happen, you know, normally. And so the city of Corinth would have been around there and there was you know, all kinds of things going on on the coast on both sides. But Corinth was, was the big deal, and, and Athens would be over in this neighborhood up, up there, the, uh, the capital of Greece, if you will. So Corinth was a major, a major, uh, major transportation hub. Here's the modern canal now, and uh, we'll come back to that in just a minute. And so you have all of this commercial trade coming from north to south, coming from, uh, from the north and south, from the east and west. And when you have all kinds of trade and business and maybe as many as 700,000 people, what do you also get? Lots of sin. What's the other name for Las Vegas? Sin City. Uh, this was the sin city of its day, and it made, would have made Las Vegas blush by comparison. 
Now, help me out. I'm not sure if we... Where's Barb? Where you at, Barb? Barb, who makes my PowerPoint. Hope she's not here. Okay. Can you tell by looking if that's the Acropolis in Athens? Or... Right, this is Athens, though. Right. They had a place like this in Corinth. They, and the word Acropolis means high city. And so this, this zone up here is called the Acropolis, and there were several buildings. This is in Athens. They had one like this in Corinth, and it was big enough that everybody could go up there. And so if they were under military attack, it was a defensible position. But also, on that high place was, I believe this is the, the ruins of the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And the Romans referred to this god, goddess as Venus. And, and so on the Acropolis, there was this temple where they worshipped the goddess of love. And the temple had a thousand priestesses and every day every night the thousand priestesses came down from the temple into the city and dispersed the worship of Aphrodite we call them prostitutes today turn with me to Romans chapter 1 it's it's very likely that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans while he was in Corinth. And from what he wrote here in Romans chapter 1, I I would not be surprised at all if that was in fact the case. Romans 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest or made plain in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God says that this, this created world should be enough that people can look at it and realize the order and the power and the things that are there and, and come to a certain knowledge of God, not to a saving knowledge of Christ, but to a knowledge of God, that that, that is the normal reaction people would have. But, verse 21, because although they knew God, they recognized God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Do you know what that says? It says that people came to a knowledge that there is a God, but they said, I don't want that. And so what did they worship? They elevated man to the status of God. Now today we look and say, well, nobody worships man. No, they don't worship him like a, like a religion, but they do say, there is no God and man is the measure of all things. Because they have rejected God, they have elevated man into the place that God deserves. Verse 24, what's the result of this? So God gave them up. God let go. 
He gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, human beings, animals. They elevated that, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, because they rejected the worship of God, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of, which was of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, they wanted to push God completely out of their existence, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting being filled, controlled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. I think the Apostle Paul was in Corinth, and I think every day that's what he saw. And he said, this is what happens when people reject the knowledge of God. Think about it. What are they worshiping in the temple of Aphrodite? They're worshiping love. They're worshiping a God in their own likeness. This was the world of Corinth. One time in Tukwila, when my son was maybe eight or nine years old, we went to the hardware store. And uh, that was long before uh, the big hardware stores came to town. We were just driving up into the you know, by the grocery store up to the hardware store there. And, and it was a summer day, had the windows down, and, and uh, he's sitting over here next to me, and we're driving along, and the car in front of me slows down, and I slowed down to pretty much to a stop, waiting to turn into the hardware, and a woman leaned her head in and propositioned me to purchase her services. <laughs> and I thought, no, and ick, <laughs> my son is sitting right here. Can you imagine a thousand women descending out of the Acropolis every night into downtown Corinth? You think our society is bad? Corinth had to be way worse than what we're living in. Way, way worse. Now what do we know about the Corinthian church? Turn with me back to Acts 18. Book of Acts, chapter 18. It's marvelous how much of this history God has left with us so we can kind of see the setting in the background of the book of 1 Corinthians. Acts 18. After these things, Paul departed from Athens. I think Athens is about 40 miles from Corinth, if I remember my study. Okay? He left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila born in Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, that's the Roman Caesar, had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, 
he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. We use the term tent maker today to refer to any missionary who has a job while he does missionary work because of this very situation here. But Paul literally made tents for a living. Okay? So he, he met these Jewish people, and, the, and when they had an occupation, he said, hey, can I stay with you and work? They said, sure. Verse 4. And he reasoned, or he taught in a logical fashion, if you will, in the synagogue every Sabbath, and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. The synagogue was the place of worship. You know, you had the temple in Jerusalem until it was destroyed, but anywhere else they had a place called a synagogue. You could call it a church if you want to, but it was the church for Jewish people. It was the place where they gathered and they read the scripture and they prayed. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and he persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, or that they spoke bad against his teaching, he shook his garments and said, Your blood be upon your own hands. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. So he went into town and first of all went to the Jews, which God wanted him to go first to the Jew, but because they rejected the teaching as a group, he said, okay, I'm going to go to the Gentiles now, the non-Jewish people, the Greek people. Um, verse 7, and he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God. This would have been an Old Testament believer, a true worshiper, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. This is one of the few times God said, you can say what you want, and I'm going to protect you. The rest of the time, he got beat, he got stoned, he got run out of town. For I have, listen to this, the end of verse 10, I have many people in this city that doesn't mean there were many Christians there. It meant that there were many people God was going to reach. Verse 11. And he continued there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When, Gal when Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, brought him to court saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. That's a Romans 1 thing. Paul's trying to get him to worship the true God, and they're saying, no, the law says you're supposed to worship these other gods. Verse 14. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, <laughs> Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you but if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, Paul's friend, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So Paul remained a good while, then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. Priscilla and Aquila were with him, and so on. That's the beginning of the church of Corinth. 
One of the commentators that I read said this. Um, no, we'll come to that in a minute. But what I want to note here is verse 8. Many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Look at these verses from chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a pretty uh, ugly list. But it reflects life in Corinth. And this is the coolest verse. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What a church they had. Would have been similar to the church Glenn and Todd used to be part of in prison. Such were some of you. No matter what sin you've done, you're not identified by that sin. You may have been given enslaved to alcohol, but you are not an alcoholic if you are a born-again Christian. You are a Christian. These people were all of these words, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanders, swindlers. And such were some of you. What a church they must have had. When they had communion, people would have thank God for my salvation. What a wonderful thing. William Barclay said this, In this hotbed of vice, in the most unlikely place in all the Greek world, some of Paul's greatest work was done, and some of the mightiest triumphs of Christianity were won. Do you think God can't work in our society? Do you think the society can keep God from reaching people? You know, for my money, you could underline this verse and right next to it write, there is no limit to God's power. People were saved and that congregation was formed. J. Vernon McGee said, Paul usually had a riot a revolution, and a revival wherever he went, and Corinth was no exception. Yeah. Only difference was he didn't get beat up this time. People were saved and congregations were formed, and, and we need to make sure that our concept of church fits what was probably going on. There were no church buildings. There was a synagogue where the Jews met, but they weren't going to let the Christians come down and use it on Sunday since they were only there on Saturday. That's not going to happen. Now, there might have been a wealthy Christian with a big house and a, you know, a big ballroom or something like that. But in a city of 700,000, when many got saved, there had to be multiple congregations. We know of perhaps three of them. The house of Chloe, mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1.11. The house of Justice and the house of Aquila and Priscilla. I think it's, it's probably a real good, uh, real good judgment to say that for sure we can see that there are congregations in these three places. 
and we'll touch on that just again in a minute. Now, this is not the same as what some people say today. They say, well, I have a house church. People today, many, not all, but who have what they call a house church, have essentially rejected the organized church as somehow we are deficient and they are now going to do the perfect thing. These churches probably did meet in houses because that's all they had. They weren't going to build a building. They weren't going to buy a building. They weren't going to rent the public school because there wasn't one. And so they met in a house. And there were uh, elders over every one of these little congregations. But the whole nature of the book of 1 Corinthians is Paul wanted them to be working together. And that was one of the big problems he's going to address. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And let's try to answer this question. Why did Paul write this book? 1 Corinthians 7. Now, I want to give you just a little bit of a language lesson here as well, in case this isn't part of your uh, understanding of Scripture and and history. Um, The word epistle occurs in English translations of the Bible. And we might say, well, what does the word epistle? Well, those were the wives of the apostles. You'll laugh at lunchtime, okay. (laughs) The word epistle in English is a transliteration of the Greek word, which is epistolos. Now, I don't know why in some words they just took the Greek word and made it into English. I don't know why they didn't just use the common meaning, which would have been a letter. That's what it means in Greek. There There are many forms of communication even today. If you're at work and something needs to be done, you might write a note on a sticky note and you say, John, please take out the trash, Ted, and you sign it and give it to him, okay? And essentially that fits what scholars would call a letter form. It's not a formal book, it's not, you know, a textbook, it's not a whatever. And so, uh, you know, depending on how you want to count them, as many as 21 of the New Testament books were written in the form of a letter. If you leave your hand in 1 Corinthians 7 and go back to chapter 1, this, this is the Greek letter form. They would put their own name right up front. So it says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then they would say, to, to the church of God which is at Corinth. And then verse 3, grace to you and peace. Those were the kind of words that just an average Greek person would write in their letter. It's sort of like we say, dear John, I hope you're doing really well today. Okay, we always say something kind of a little nice like that before we launch into the business of whatever it is. Um, And then at the end, there's a sign-off or a salutation, and we see that at the end of the book as well. It's a letter form, and 1 Corinthians 7 just bears that out. Now, concerning the things of which you wrote to me. Okay, I don't know if it's really in your mind that churches would write letters to the apostles. But there was this two-way communication. The Apostle Paul couldn't be everywhere at once. Here's an example of where the people in Corinth said, we need to ask Paul some questions. (coughs) And so they wrote their questions down, and of course they they handed it to somebody who carried it to the Apostle Paul. And starting in chapter 7, he is going to answer a bunch of these questions. Now, he, he, uh, unfortunately, he doesn't say, you ask this question, here's the answer. You ask this question, here's the answer. We're left to discern the topics, and the, but it does seem to flow right out. But the answers to their questions don't start to chapter 7. 
So what did Paul say in chapters 1 through 6? Well, what Paul said was some stuff they needed to hear. (laughs) The primary reason that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians was to answer some questions sent to him in a letter, but there was more than that that needed to be said. So let's go back to chapter 1 and understand this, the, what, what really is the, uh, the theme and the tone that controls this whole letter. Chapter 1, verse 9. We, you know, we read these verses, verse 1 through, through 9, and it was just really positive and a wonderful statement about salvation. And it ends, God is faithful, by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now... The New King James starts out with the word now. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you. He launches into a teaching on being divided and having cliques and disagreements and arguments, and it's going to go on for about four chapters. What is interesting to me is if you, the, the word that's translated now in this translation, the NIV doesn't even put a transitive word, it just says, I plead with you. But there is a word there, and that word is most commonly translated, but. Let's go back and read it and put that word in. Verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you by Christ Jesus that you are enriched in everything when all utterance and knowledge even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gifts eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who will confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son Jesus Christ our Lord but I got something I need to talk about and If you're not familiar with 1 Corinthians, read the book between now and next week because he he sits them down and scolds them big time because they had some tremendous problems going on. Um, And if we were to summarize one of the reasons he really has to get after them, it would be this. They had become spiritually arrogant. Spiritually arrogant. We could use some phrases like this. My brand of Christianity is better than your brand. My brand is so much better than yours that I'm not going to fellowship with you. My group is better than your group, and I'm not going to have anything to do with your group. And the arrogance went beyond that to being unteachable. They had been Christians at most for a year and a half to two years. And here they are saying, I am the top of this stack right here. Me and my group. We'll read about it as we go on through the book. But some of them will say, Paul led me to Christ. And some of them will say, Apollos is my pastor. And some of them will say, I just follow Jesus himself. And they're going to have these arguments and these divisions. They're going to tolerate sexual sin in the church from some arrogant perspective that says, well, let me explain to you why this is okay. 
They're going to take each other to court to resolve problems. There was class prejudice between the rich and the poor. When they had the Lord's Supper, it was either at the beginning or the end of what we would call a fellowship dinner. And that was taken off of the Passover because that's where Jesus started the Lord's Supper. But when they were having the dinner, it says some people were standing in the corner starving and some people are getting drunk on food and wine. And then they all came together and said, let's remember Jesus our Savior. And, and they were arrogant about these kinds of things. They were proud of their ability to manifest miraculous spirituality, as in speaking in tongues or a prophecy or things like that. They were saying, my gift is better than your gift. And there were even some people denying the reality of the resurrection of Christ. And so all of this created a condition that I would call spiritual immorality. That's right. Pass that right up here, dear. Should have been at the wedding yesterday, huh, Mike? <laughs> I'll tell you that story. They had been Christians a couple of years, but they still had much to learn. Now again, if you read verses 1 through 9, you see this description of salvation, and he clearly says, you are saved people. There's none of this, well, look how bad they're acting, they must not be Christians. No, they were Christian people. They were truly saved, but they were extremely immature in Christ, so immature that they didn't know they were immature. And I think this passage shows how, this, how deep this immature, immaturity ran. For who makes you to differ from another, and what do you have that you did not receive? This is a, a wonderful lesson in humility when he says, look, if you're a Christian, you receive that from Christ. If you have a spiritual gift, you received it from Christ. Why in the world could you possibly be arrogant about your spirituality when all of it came from somebody else? What do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you brag and boast as if you had not received it? You are already full. He's, 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 being, uh, he's, he's sort of making fun of them. You're already full. You're already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I wish you did reign so that we could also reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death for we've been made to be a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for your sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Now, now think about it. The Apostle Paul, who led them to Christ and started their church, and now they think they're better than him. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved son and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you. You get that? Oh, Paul's not coming, just Timothy. That guy thinks he's something, he's nothing. I know what's going on. That's the, that's the way they were. But I will come to you. That's dad at work. Hey, bud, I'm going to be there at 6 o'clock. I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. 
You do not want the Apostle Paul riding in on his horse saying, what is the problem here? For the kingdom of God is not in word but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and in a spirit of gentleness? That's pretty harsh talking, isn't it? Yeah. That's how immature they were. They didn't realize how arrogant they were. What did they need? Look with me at chapter 3, please. Chapter 3. And, and, and Paul has just described some of the problem, and he says here in verse 1, I could not speak to you as to spiritual people. I had to speak to you like an unbeliever. He uses the word carnal or fleshly. He's drawing a contrast. He said there are people who are in Christ and spiritual, and there are people who are unsaved, and you are acting like unsaved. I have to talk to you like that, even as to a babe in Christ. There's nothing wrong with a brand new Christian being spiritually immature. Person who, who has just believed in Christ, they may, they may only know five things. And maybe you've been in Christ a long time and you know 50. And that person is, is immature, they're gonna make some mistakes, they're gonna ask some crazy questions, they're going to do all kinds of things, but they're grown in the Lord. It's like a little child. You don't criticize a child and say, what's wrong with you, child? Why can't you write a 20-page paper yet? They're growing up, and it's normal for them to be immature. But after you've been in Christ for a while, the Apostle Paul said, I couldn't even talk to you like somebody who's grown up. I had to talk to you like a baby. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. Can you imagine, can you imagine sitting there in church, and they come to church, hey, we got the letter from Paul? Do you remember that Memorex commercial where, where the guy's hair is blowing back like that? And they said, is it real or is it Memorex? You know, that had to be going on. Verse 3, you are still carnal. For where there is envy and strife and division, are you not carnal? You're, you're behaving like mere men. You're behaving like an unsaved person. Now, what did they need? And I just want to touch on this now. Verse 3, or verse 1, they needed solid food. Or verse 2, they needed solid food. They needed God's truth. They needed to embrace God's truth and grow up in him. But here's the thing, perhaps the broad, the broad lesson I hope you will take today. They needed Paul to define what spiritual maturity was. See, they looked at their condition. They said, I've believed in Christ. I, I, I know I have him inside. And then they looked at some other factors, which were really worldly factors. And they said, I'm all that. And they didn't realize they were still babies. They needed Paul to, to write this whole book. Maybe he sent them a copy of Romans at the same time. I don't know. And just said, look, here's, here's what it means to be mature. And he's going to go through one area after another after another and, and I'm just excited to go through this book with you 
and say, this is what it looks like to be a mature Christian. And for us to set our sights high and to be uh, aiming to be those mature people like Paul. I haven't made the appointment yet, but I, I anticipate doing so and getting a physical in January, which I do every year. It's sort of like uh, taking a test at the end of the school term to see what you really learned, you know, or what you really did. And, uh, you know, I, when I make that appointment, they'll say, well, go have some blood drawn, and they'll, they'll scrutinize my blood, and I'll go to the doctor, and he'll scrutinize my body and say something like, what a magnificent specimen of manhood you are. <laughs> You know what he prescribed for me last year? I'm not making this up. He said, you should drink a glass of red wine every day. And I went, ew. I don't care for the flavor. He will tell me what I need to hear. Some of it will be what I want to hear. Some of it will not be what I want to hear. But I will still go because he is the doctor and I am not. What would you think of me if I said, well, the doctor says, but. No, you'd say, what's, what's wrong with you, Lunsford? The question I leave with you today is, who defines spiritual maturity in your life? Is it you, or is it God? More than anything, that's what we're going to understand as we go through this book. This is what it means to be mature. This is what it means to be mature. And we're going to have many opportunities to align ourselves with what God wants to do in our life. Heavenly Father, do what you will in my life. Do what you will in our lives. Do what you will in our church. We come here on the first Sunday of this new year to put ourselves at your disposal to listen to your definition of what it means to be godly. Help us to understand and then help us to do. I pray in Christ's name, amen.